0: The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. Some days I just get tired, tired of talking about all of the hatred and even some of the hatred that I'm feeling these days. It's just wearing me down. I've read a few articles in the last couple of weeks that I thought were brilliant analysis. I don't have to be the only brilliant analyst out there about certain things. One was by a gentleman named Coleman Hughes who wrote for the Free Press about a TED Talk that he was supposed to give about colorblindness, which eventually was trashed And of course, because we're not allowed to say you're colorblind anymore. If you say you're colorblind, then you must be a white supremacist. And he's not a white supremacist. He's African-American. But nonetheless, he wrote a great piece in the Free Press. And I don't see any purpose in making something else up. I'm probably just going to give you the salient points of it and read parts of it to you in today's No Restraint podcast. There was also a piece in this morning's New York Post, which was, by a gentleman named Stephen Hayward, who wrote about the real problem for us when it comes to anti-Semitism, particularly in Western nations, is the fact that we really need to decolonize our college campuses. That's even the title of his article. He says, reaction to Hamas massacre shows it's time to decolonize the campus. So let me share with you what these two gentlemen have written because I couldn't have said it any better myself. And I've already expressed all my emotions about this subject, and I'm tired. I'm tired of hearing Dave Chappelle telling people that he believes that Israel's committing war crimes and just a passing reference to the brutality of the Hamas monsters. I'm really tired of people who wanna stand up for Israel or stand up for Jews being called all kinds of names as if they were actually in the wrong when they're not. And of course, I'm sick of our president, Joe Biden, who tried to analyze and analogize the Ukrainian war and what's going on in Israel right now, the war in Gaza. There's nothing similar about them. As a matter of fact, it worries me that Joe Biden's support for Israel might be pretty weak and it's conditional. On his visit, He got the empathy part of the visit right. He kind of impressed me that he went at all, because I don't think of him as being very brave, and I feel that what he was trying to tell Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Israeli people was that you're not alone. But he made a mistake by insisting on the delivery of humanitarian aid to Gaza, knowing full well that it's going to be seized by the Hamas terrorists. And it's gonna undermine Israel's call for all of the hostages, including 13 Americans, mind you, to be released before there's any aid. And now he has jeopardized funding for Israel's war effort by tying it to funding for Ukraine's year-old stalemate against Russia. The most charitable way to describe putting these two things together is that it was an attempt to justify support for allies in general. But it looked and smelled more like a way to exploit atrocities to justify billions more in defense spending. That'll delight the lobbyists and the contractors in Washington, but will infuriate Americans who wonder, why is Joe Biden not spend even a fraction of those billions of dollars on finishing the wall along the southern border to keep our own country safe? Trying and tying Israel to Ukraine is an attempt to overcome any objections in the House of Representatives, where Republicans still hold a slim majority, and where conservatives are starting to ask questions like, but Israel is not Ukraine. Israel is much closer ally. It's a democracy. And it's been for far longer going through terrible things than the Ukraine. Its intelligence assists U.S. counterterror operations. Its technology, like the Iron Dome, keeps American troops safe as well. Israel has taken bullets, or rather Scud missiles, for the United States, allowing Iraq to attack it during the Gulf War without retaliating, because the U.S. needed to keep Arab allies in its wartime coalition. And millions of Americans, Christians, and Jews love Israel. Visiting it millions of times. Moreover, Ukraine has a choice. It can negotiate for peace with Russia, albeit accepting territorial losses. Israel can't negotiate with Hamas or its Iranian backers. It's fighting for its very survival. By tying them together, Biden has placed Israel in greater danger. And likewise, Joe Biden also insists on a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But the solution, that solution should be off the table. Hamas has shown the danger of having a fully self-governing Palestinian territory right next door to Israel. Notably, the Arab leaders in the region have given up on Palestinian statehood as a prerequisite for peace. Before the war, the Saudi crown prince merely said, he wanted to uh, ease the life of the Palestinians. Palestinian statehood as a condition for peace will only guarantee more terror. Biden also spoke out against both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, but he linked Israel to these hateful sentiments, saying that he told Israeli leaders not to be blinded by rage. Never mind that the Israelis, Jews and Arabs have rallied together against Hamas and the Israeli military upholds the highest human rights standards. Biden did not address the crisis at our universities, where left-wing students are marching in defense of terror, nor did he discuss recent attacks on US forces near Yemen and in Syria. The Oval Office address was the opposite of Biden's speech last week in support of Israel. Back then, Biden declared that Israel has the right to respond and indeed has a duty to respond to terrorism. Israelis were so impressed by that speech that they started assigning it to schoolchildren in English class. But this week's message was different. Israel can defend itself if Ukraine gets money, if the Palestinians get aid and statehood, and if the Israelis promise not to be too angry about what happened. Biden, in short, made Israel's survival conditional. No doubt he did so at the behest of those who want to fund the Ukraine war indefinitely without considering a negotiated settlement, and with the help of the innumerable anti-Israel underlings in the administration, who have been trying to nudge U.S. policy in a pro-Palestinian direction, even in the aftermath of the Hamas attack. The result is that instead of showing solidarity with U.S. allies, Biden showed weakness, and that has been from the start of this administration, he continues to show weakness. Now, let me tell you what I think um, Stephen Haywood hit right on the nail, or hit the nail right on the head, whatever the right expression is, when he talks about the college campuses and the need to decolonize them. He says, nothing has so vividly revealed the moral rot of our elite universities as the reaction to Hamas's October 7th massacre of Jews. By the way, Bill Maher, of all people, agrees that you shouldn't send your kid to university at all, but particularly not to the elite universities where they make them stupid. Uh, Steve Haywood goes on to say, a closer look at the peculiar vocabulary of the dominant campus left points to the core of the problem and the left's insincerity. These are interesting subjects, and we need to be talking about them, Normal human beings, not handicapped by a contemporaneous college education, may be wondering why the pro-Hamas academics are coming out of the woodwork and how they make their chief complaint that the Jews are colonizers. It has long been tiresome to review the lengthy history of Jews living in Judea, as the Romans called the Holy Land when it occupied it, centuries before Islam was a gleam in Muhammad's eye not to mention the 20th century international mandate to restore a Jewish homeland after centuries of occupation by the Ottoman Empire and other previous colonizers or Israel's complete withdrawal from Gaza more than 15 years ago, after which Gaza decided self-government meant empowering Hamas. Nor does it do any good to point out the entirety of human history is one of invasion and conquest, and virtually no nation or ethnic group, including especially Jews, is without a history of conquest by a hostile or opportunistic neighbor. Indeed, William the Conqueror was a colonizer in the 1066 Norman Conquest. None of the history or legal claims about the Middle East matters to the braying mob of campus anti-Semites because the colonizer charge isn't about occupation or colonialism or a dispute about dividing up the historic land of Israel at all. Colonialism, or its parent category imperialism, is the all-purpose charge that Lenin developed a century ago to explain the failure of Marxist historical predictions and supply a new rationale for whipping up radical enthusiasm for revolution. In practice, it is a means of delegitimizing capitalism and sanctifying resentment of successful groups like Jews, Asians, and whites generally, hence the related term ubiquitous on campus, white supremacy. Despite centuries of persecution and repeated pogroms like the one on October 7th, Jews persist as a supremely successful ethnic group, overrepresented, campus terminology again, in the ranks of Nobel Prize winners, scientists, and most elite professions, including, ironically, academia, although this appears to be quickly changing. The basic premise of our universities today is that if your ethnic group is statistically overrepresented, you are a de facto oppressor. Back in the 1920s and the 1930s, Ivy League colleges openly and explicitly discriminated against Jews, putting in writing that they didn't want too many Jews in their student bodies. It is likely no coincidence the percentage of Jewish students in the student bodies of elite colleges has been declining rapidly in recent years, alongside the rise in academic antisemitism. The creed of the increasingly influential diversity, equity, and inclusion movement has given the green light to hate Jews openly, discriminate against Asians, and demonize whites. One of the ironies of the campus critics of colonizing is how fully they have colonized with their identity-based dogma nearly every academic discipline in our colleges and universities— Forget English and the fuzzy politicized social sciences, even in the hard sciences like chemistry and physics. There are persistent demands the curriculum be decolonized, which means in practice having fewer white male authors on a course syllabus. The insincerity of the entire colonizer charge can be seen in a related campus fact, the land acknowledgement. It is popular for faculty and administrators to declare at official functions like convocation and commencement that the university occupies land that belongs to, and often said to have been stolen from, an indigenous American tribe. But if the land was acquired or held unjustly, why not give it back, or at least pay reparations from the multi-billion dollar endowments that many of these universities have? That's never suggested. Only the Jews in Israel are expected to give back land. It is good that some major donors to elite universities are publicly ending their financial support, like Ron Lauder, but it is unlikely to be enough to end the campus rot. Only one solution will work. Close all the radicalized Middle East studies and critical theory departments that are hothouses for the noxious ideology and eliminate the faculty positions typically held by mediocre professors in the first place. In other words, decolonize the campus. It should be recalled, some of the strongest early support for Nazism in the 1920s and 30s came from German universities, the same time our Ivy League colleges discriminated against Jews. Do our elite universities really wanna repeat that story arc? Maybe they do. Stephen Haywood, by the way, is the Gaylord Visiting Professor at Pepperdine University's School of Public Policy. One of the other interesting pieces that I read a couple of weeks ago was by a gentleman, a young writer, whose name is Coleman Hughes, and his article was titled, Why is Ted Scared of Color Blindness? He says, like any young writer, I'm well aware that an invitation to speak at TED can be a career-changing opportunity. So you can imagine how thrilled he was when he was invited to appear at the year's annual conference. What he could not have imagined from an organization whose tagline is ideas worth spreading is that it would attempt to suppress his ideas. As an independent podcaster and author, I content myself among the lucky few who can make a living doing what they truly love to do. Nothing about my experience with Ted could change that. The reason this story matters is not because he was treated poorly, but because it helps explain how organizations can be captured by an ideological minority that bends even the people at the very top to its will. In that, the story of Ted is the story of so many crucial and once trustworthy institutions in American life. He says, let's go back to the start. This past April, I gave a talk at the yearly TED conference in Vancouver, Canada. In my talk, I defended colorblindness, the idea that we should treat people without regard to race, both in our personal lives and in our public policy, which is also the topic of his forthcoming book. Even though a majority of Americans believe that colorblind policies are the right approach to governing a racially diverse society, We live in a strange moment in which many of our elite believe that colorblindness is in fact a Trojan horse for white supremacy. Taking that viewpoint seriously while ultimately refuting it was the express purpose of Coleman Hughes's talk. As you might imagine, Ted is an unbelievably well-oiled machine. In the weeks and months leading up to the conference, I wrote my talk Revised it in conjunction with Ted's curation team and cleared it with their fact checkers. I have never prepared more thoroughly, he says, for a talk. On April nineteenth, I stepped on stage in front of an audience of nearly two thousand people and delivered it. Ted draws a progressive crowd, so I expected that my talk might upset a handful of people, and indeed, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a handful of scowling faces but the reaction was overwhelmingly positive. The audience applauded. Some people even stood up. Throughout the meals and in the hallways, people approached me to say they loved it, and those who disagreed with it offered smart and thoughtful criticisms. But the day after my talk, I heard from Chris Anderson, the head of TED. He told me that a group called Black at TED which TED's website describes as an employee resource group that exists to provide a safe space for TED staff who identify as black, was upset by my talk. Over email, Chris asked if I'd be willing to speak with them privately. I agreed to speak with them on principle, that principle being that you should always speak with your critics because they may expose some crucial blind spots in your worldview. No sooner did I agree to speak with them than Chris told me that Black at TED actually was not willing to speak to me. I never learned why. I hoped that this strange about-face was the end of the drama, but it was only the beginning. On the final day of the conference, TED held its yearly town hall at which the audience can give feedback on the conference. The event opened with two people denouncing my talk back-to-back. The first woman called my talk racist, as well as dangerous and irresponsible, comments that were met with cheers from the crowd. The second commentator, Otho Kerr, a program director at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, claimed that I was willing to have us slide back into the days of separate but equal. The talk, by the way, is online, so you can judge for yourself whether those accusations bear any resemblance to reality. In response to their comments, Anderson took the mic and thanked them for their remarks. He also reminded the audience that Ted can't shy away from controversy on issues that matter so much, a statement I very much agreed with and appreciated. Because he said as much, I left the conference fairly confident that Ted would release and promote my talk just like any other Ted talk, in spite of the staff and audience members who were upset by it. Two weeks later, Anderson emailed to tell me that there was blowback on my talk and that some are internally arguing that we shouldn't post it. In the email, he told me the most challenging blowback had come from a well-known social scientist who I later learned was Adam Grant. He quoted from Grant's message directly. Really glad to see Ted offering viewpoint diversity. We need more conservative voices. But as a social scientist, was dismayed to see Coleman Hughes deliver an inaccurate message. His case for colorblindness is directly contradicted by an extensive body of rigorous research. For the state of the science, see Leslie, Bono, Kim, and Beaver in 2020's Journal of Applied Psychology. In a meta-analysis of 206 studies, they found that whereas color-conscious models reduce prejudice and discrimination, color-blind approaches often fail to help and sometimes backfire. I read the paper that Grant referenced titled, On Melting Pots and Salad Bowls, A Meta-Analysis of the Effects of Identity-Blind and Identity-Conscious Diversity Ideologies, Expecting to Find Arguments Against Color Blindness. I was shocked to find that the paper largely supported Coleman Hughes's talk. In the results section, the authors write that colorblindness is negatively related to stereotyping and is also negatively related to prejudice. They also found that meritocracy is negatively related to discrimination. So I wrote back to Anderson. Far from a refutation of my talk, this meta-analysis is closer to an endorsement of it. The only anti-colorblindness finding in the paper is that colorblindness and meritocracy are associated with opposing DEI policies. Well, I do oppose race-based DEI policies in most, but not all cases, unapologetically. But that is a philosophical disagreement, not an example of me delivering incorrect social science. I feel it would be unjustified not to release my talk simply because many people disagree with my philosophical perspective. By that standard, most TED Talks would never get released. To which he responded, Thanks, Coleman. Great note. More soon. Before this email exchange, Coleman hadn't seriously considered the possibility that TED might not post the talk at all. What's more, the fact that the most challenging blowback to the talk was a social science paper showing that color blindness reduces stereotyping and prejudice, puzzled me. About a week later, I received an email from Whitney Pennington Rogers, the current affairs curator at TED and the point person for the curation of my talk. Whitney said that in lieu of releasing my TED Talk normally, TED was inviting me to participate in a moderated conversation that we would publish as an extension of your talk. I'm always happy to converse and debate, Coleman said. So I agreed, too hastily, in retrospect. I had assumed that the phrase, an extension of your talk was meant metaphorically, i.e. that this moderated conversation would be a separate video. Only later in the email exchange did I realize that it was meant literally. In other words, Ted wanted my talk and this moderated conversation to be released as a single combined video. I had two problems with this. First, it would hold the release of my TED Talk hostage to the existence of this other moderated conversation, which at the time was not guaranteed to happen at all. Secondly, I worried that tacking a debate to the end of my TED Talk would effectively put an asterisk next to it. It would imply that my argument ought not to be heard without also hearing the opposing perspective, that it shouldn't be absorbed without a politically palate-cleansing chaser. Given that my talk had passed the initial fact-checking, the curation team, and had been cleared by Anderson and Rogers themselves, I saw no reason why it wouldn't be released and promoted as any other TED Talk would be. I told Rogers as much over a Zoom call. Because she and I were unable to come to an agreement, I had a follow-up call with Anderson. On that call, he conceded that his employees' anger stemmed from political bias— but nevertheless asked me to agree to an atypical release strategy. Ted would release the debate and the talk as separate videos, but at the same time. He sold this idea to me as a way to amplify my talk, as if this atypical release strategy were conceived for my benefit. That made little sense to me. The reality, I told him, was that these non-standard release strategies were intended not to amplify my message, but to dilute it. After all, the whole genesis of this debacle was the fact that certain TED staffers wanted to nix my talk altogether, and Anderson feared an internal firestorm if my talk were released normally. Clearly, the release proposals being pressed upon me were conceived in order to placate angry staffers, not in order to amplify my message. By the end of the calls, they had reached a compromise. TED would release and promote the talk as they would any other, And Coleman Hughes would participate in a debate that would be released as a separate video no fewer than two weeks after the talk. He held up his end of the bargain. Ted did not. The talk was posted on the Ted website on July 28th. The debate was posted two weeks later. By the time the debate came out, I had moved on. I assumed that Ted had held up its end of the bargain and was no longer paying close attention. Then on August 15th, Tim Urban, a popular blogger who delivered one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time, pointed out that my talk had only a fraction of the views of every other TED Talk released around the same time. Urban tweeted, there have been a million talks about race at TED. For this talk, and only for this talk, was the speaker required to publicly debate his points after the talk as a condition for having it posted online as it is the lack of standard promotion by Ted, has Coleman's talk at about 10% of the views of all of the other talks surrounding his on their site. Two days later, he checked to see if Tim was onto something. And as of August 17th, the two talks released just before mine had 569,000 views and 787,000 views retrospectively on Ted's website. The two talks released immediately after mine, videos that had less time to circulate than mine, had over 400,000 views respectively. My talk, by comparison, had 73,000 views, only 16% of the views of the lowest performing video in its immediate vicinity. My debate with Jamal Bowie, a New York Times columnist with almost half a million followers on X, formerly Twitter, had performed even worse on TED's website. As of Tuesday, September 19th, after having over a month to circulate, it had a whopping 5,000 views. That makes it the third worst performing video released by TED in all of 2023. Either my TED content is performing extremely poorly because it is far less interesting than most of TED's content, or TED deliberately is not promoting it. A string of evidence points to the latter explanation. Now, this is the kind of stuff that's going on on college campuses and in the media. And if we don't put our foot down and we don't say enough is enough, it'll go on forever. Thanks for listening to this No Restraint podcast. A new one will be coming out in a week. Please pass it around to your friends. God bless you and God bless the USA.